This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. In an age when belief in God seems more and more difficult to achieve and perhaps less and less likely to be recommended, how do we commit our lives to God? This is indeed a spiritual question, but it is also a philosophical question, a question of incredible practical import, a question of faith and reason and beauty and imagination. My guest today dives deep into the question of belief in God for people like us living in times like ours. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo, and this is Church Life Today from McGrath Institute for Church Life, Joining me is Father Ryan Duns, a member of the Society of Jesus and Assistant Professor of Theology at Marquette University, Go Eagles. We will be discussing his new book, Spiritual Exercises for a Secular Age, Desmond and the Quest for God, which is out now from the University of Notre Dame Press. Go Irish. Father Ryan Duns, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Lenny, for having me. So if we're going to think about and talk about spiritual exercises for a secular age, which you focus on in your book, let's start with getting a, a bit of a grasp on what this age is in which we find ourselves. So how would you describe our secular age? Like, what are its markers, its characteristics? Sure. It might be helpful to step back just a little bit to say, and I'm here I'm drawing on distinctions made by Charles Taylor, one of the major figures in the background of my book. And he, he identifies three different forms of secularity. There's what he would call secular one, which would, might be the separation of the heavens and the earth, what he would say like, is a classical view of secularism, where the earthly is separated from the eternal. Mm-hmm. Then you would have secular two, which reflects the more modern view, maybe like a Richard Dawkins type of view. People have stopped going to church as the Enlightenment has progressed. The ability to believe has become increasingly difficult. Eventually, belief in a transcendent God will completely disappear. Mm-hmm. In Secular 3, Taylor begins to probe what are the conditions of belief. It is true, he'll note, that belief in God is no longer presupposed. But it's not that it's disappearing, it's more that it's a matter of contest and lively disagreement between parties. And that's what makes me really excited, that it's a live question that people have to wrestle with. And so Secular 3, instead of seeing it in totally negative or bleak terms, it becomes sort of the football field, if we like the Notre Dame imagery. Well, thank you very much. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, hey, we gotta, we, we pay, <laughs> pay our schools our due. <laughs> but, you know, that, that this is it's a contest of what makes it credible? How do we move the ball down the field as we go? Are there arguments or practices within this field of secular three that work? Or are there forces that really drive the ball back against us? So that's really kind of the the, the terrain that I'm interested in exploring. So if we think about this in, in terms of secular three, and you said, especially Taylor is exploring the conditions of belief, recognizing that belief in God is not presupposed it appears as an option, which is there's possibilities there, live possibilities, you said. Is there also kind of a, a dark burden sign to that in terms of now God 
and belief in God is presented as one option for life among how many other options? Isn't there perhaps a kind of infinite number of options of ways that you can orient your life and make primary commitments? Yeah, Taylor has a beautiful image of the nova, hmm. sort of this this explosion of options that we confront often. And I find this in pastoral work, and I certainly find it in my teaching. Our students are faced today with myriad options, is spiritual, professional, vocational, you name it. What they have a hard time doing, though, is choosing. Mm-hmm. So faced with an seemingly infinite array of choices, they lack somehow the ability to choose among them. And that itself is paralyzing. So they can feel the woo or the pull of belief in the transcendent, but at the same time, they're being pulled and wooed by other forces that are acting against that. And so they're always stuck somewhere in the between. And it's a fraught, difficult, spiritually perilous place for them and they register that. And so that's been, I, I have to admit, one of the great joys of teaching is to be able to wade into this situation where they're struggling and they're struggling to believe and to figure out what they believe and to articulate their beliefs. And it's a privilege to walk with them in this. Right there in the messy middle. You know, I'm I'm reminded of, I don't know, something I read at some point. I don't think it's it's too hidden in in popular literature or research, but it has to do, I think, with consumer behavior, kind of sociological studies of this. And from what I recall, it seemed to suggest that the more options that a consumer considers for anything, the less satisfied that consumer is when they actually make a purchase. And I think this kind of research and this thinking has been applied to other things, not when you're purchasing as a consumer, but even, you know, say dating and actually committing to somebody eventually, or it might have to do with going to a school. And in this case, it it might have to do with, you know, the fundamental option or commitment for your life in terms of religious belief that the more options that are entertained for however long, the less capable somebody is in being kind of settled and satisfied with a final option. I wonder about that, like what you would think about that here in terms of this Nova, this explosion of options, and especially as you're talking about kind of the pastoral work, sifting through options, but also is there an importance to starting to make sort of commitments and concrete practices out of these commitments early so as to get away from that buyer's remorse that eventually would be there? You know, I love the image. I, I love the, the phrase buyer's remorse. That's, I, I think teaching first-year students is my it's the greatest joy I have as a teacher because about two weeks in, you can ask your, your students, how many of you have wondered if you're where you belong because everybody else seems to be having a great time. Oh yeah. And, but they, I find this also with their spirituality. How do I know? And they're, they're, they're so convinced that they need some, many of them are so convinced that they need a formula or a, a definitive drop down proof. And, navigating the ambiguity of belief and the commitment of self. If I commit to this project, if I'm, if I direct my life in this way, it does mean closing off other avenues and that's paralyzing for them. And so one of the encouragements I, I find myself making is to look at it, not as closing windows, but ever more going deeper. How do we, cultivate dispositions that enable us to say, okay, as I commit myself to this, I now have to, go, I have to attain a, level, a new level of depth. 
and to push further and deeper and to uncover not only the depths of the reality before me, but to find the reality and its depths within me. It's almost an Augustinian odyssey from the outside to the inside, from the inferior to the superior. Ah. But getting them to, to see that the more they commit themselves, the more concentrated they become, the freer they actually are. Hmm. That there's freedom in commitment. That vocation is always, it's not an oppression of a power above you. It's the empowerment of committing your life that makes you flourish as you are and who you're called to be. That's so beautifully stated. I mean, it, it almost seems like in what you're saying that it's better to commit and repent and then commit again. You know, you've made a mistake, now do it again. Then to kind of keep all these soft commitment, non-commitments open for longer, right? Yeah. yeah. I recall something Cardinal George said once, and, and I, I, I take this very seriously as part of the atmosphere of, our, of young adults especially, but I think all of us face this. He, I think he said once, we live in an era where everything is permissible, but nothing is forgivable. Hmm. And, and so if you err in one thing, I mean, today they call it cancel culture, but whatever you I want to call it. I was just thinking that, right? Yeah. This is, you know, so we, we, there's such a pressure almost towards perfection. And if we get it wrong, you know, the, even the notion of repentance is so hard for people because it admits one must you know, face, oh, I erred in this. Mm-hmm. And, wh- and what will one's audience think? And so that's why you know, finding communities where this is sh- a shared practice of repentance, of conversion, ongoing conversion, I think is so important to move from the individual to community, not just one in a herd of people, but one in a, a group of fellow pilgrims. Yeah. You know, I was struck by, I think, I, I think I have to mention this at some point during our conversation. I might as well get, it, get to it here. In terms of kind of making a commitment, how about this as a segue? Making a commitment or being struck by something and following it. I noticed this. Mm. I just love this line that's right in the introduction of your book. It's a strangely specific confession. Let's just call it what it is. You say, and I quote, <laughs> page 755 of a secular age changed my life. This is what you say. Page 755 of a secular age changed my life. Do tell. Yeah. So on page 755 of Charles Taylor's massive book, and I, I, I added a footnote, I, I just taught a graduate seminar and we read a good bit of Taylor. And I told him, I said, that, I said if, if I had space on my thigh, I think I would tattoo the words from, the, from that page. <laughs> And they marveled at this, that one would make that big of a commitment. But it's at at that point of the book that Taylor, having mapped out the terrain of the secular three, where where belief in God is a contested matter, he says, look, the old ways that were once really reliable probably aren't going to work as well anymore. That doesn't mean that there are no ways that lead us to God. It means that we must go out in search of new ways and to, to, to risk exploring the, the soil of secular three and to see if, almost like with spiritual dowsing rods, can we find new sources of the water of eternal life? And that, to me, it, it changed my life because I said, this, is, this study of theology isn't learning about. It's not just getting someone else's theory. It's, it's a vocation is a call to search. So one becomes a pilgrim in search of 
these springs, these openings to the transcendent. And so I call it, the, in the book, I call it the Narnia option. If you remember from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm-hmm. the children go in through the wardrobe, they come out at the very end, they, they tumble out of the wardrobe, and they're disappointed that they can't get back in. And the old professor is like, well, of course you can't get back in. You can't go back in the same way that you got there in the first place. But that doesn't mean you'll never get back in again. Yeah. You must be attentive and alert to the new openings. Mm. And so my, so it became theology and philosophy instead of systems of something I know and control, but to a mode of life, a way of attention and attunement to the world around me. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. My guest is Father Ryan Duns, a priest of the Society of Jesus who is assistant professor of theology at Marquette University. We're discussing his new book from the University of Notre Dame Press, Spiritual Exercises for a Secular Age, Desmond and the Quest for God. Well, we've spoken a little bit about the secular age part of this, so maybe we should get to the spiritual exercises part of it. And as a Jesuit, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius are obviously quite familiar to you and to all who have been formed in Ignatian spirituality in particular. And one might expect then that your book, which speaks of spiritual exercises, will be concerned primarily with this Ignatian spirituality. Now, I found, you know, this is certainly not foreign to what you were doing, but the person you put front and center in your book is the philosopher William Desmond. Why Desmond? So quick anecdote, I was studying German in Austria in 2011. As and one I met does, a of course. As one does. As one because, does. You know, yeah. How else does one spend a summer? <laughs> <laughs> and I met a, a fellow Jesuit who was doing his, his PhD in Belgium and mentioned to me the figure he was working on, this Irish, in his words, he goes, well, he's some Irish fellow. And this man was Polish and uh he mentioned William Desmond. So I did what every responsible scholar does. I went Googled to Wikipedia, yeah. <laughs> looked him up, uh-huh. and it was the word metaxological. And we will revisit that in a moment. But the word metaxological struck me. I had no idea what it meant. And that night, I lay in bed looking at the ceiling, and all I could think of was, was this word, metaxological, metaxology, metaxu, the between. And so I ordered the Desmond Reader, and then I kept reading and reading and found myself drawn more and more uh, fully into this systematic way of thinking about metaphysics and the world that was at once, it was just intellectually credible and brilliantly poetic. And I thought, this is a companion thinker to me, and I I want to spend my time with him. And so I did. Hmm. and have spent many hours, and blessedly, William Desmond is still alive, and he was very gracious in speaking to my class for two um, hours this semester. And just, he's a truly, just a gem of a man, and he's brilliant and funny, and I think it's the most spiritually uplifting philosophy one one can find. Hmm. Can you tell us about metaxology now, since I imagine many of our listeners have now heard this word for the first time and are wondering, what is this? Yes. This is, this is something you can tattoo on your forearm. And Absolutely. It'll be a conversation starter. Metaxology comes from the Greek word metaxu, or the between. Between what? Between life and death, between being and nothingness, between imminence and transcendence. Desmond situates 
it's like a good Platonist would. We begin in the midst of life's journey, and we reflect on the different ways we can talk about what it means to be. And as the, the, the philosophical tradition knows, Aristotle, being can be said in many ways. And there are different voices. There's univocity. I, I tell people, make a fist. That's univocity. Mm. Then splay your hands open. That's equivocity. Then if you take your two hands and put one hand over the other, you have a sense of dialectic, of an ongoing relationship that's eventually ending somewhere with one point emerging, if that reading of Hegel is correct. And metaxology is sort of like a firm handshake, where we respect what is other to the self, but that there's an intertwining and an intermingling with what is other. And that's what metaxology does. It looks at the threshold spaces between life and death, good and evil, imminence and transcendence. And it, it trains you how to stay in that middle space as an attentive listener to what might be beyond you at any given moment, what's deep within and what's, what's transcendent to you. Mm. You know, even, even as you're speaking now, you're sort of creating images for us and helping us to kind of grasp on to what might seem like these more theoretical notions through our imagination. And I found that all the way through your book to give us images and metaphors and scenes. You already spoke about the Narnian moment. Luke Skywalker makes an appearance in the book, taking us to, to one of his moments. But I think maybe one of the, the first and, and most powerful scenes that you set is, is again, right in the introduction. And you bring us with, Ed, with Desmond on Arnold's Dover Beach through this recitation of this really arresting poem that puts us in a certain place with a certain possibility and maybe even a certain kind of urgency. I was wondering if if you wouldn't mind reading that poem for us so we can hear it and then helping us to see where this puts us. I would love to. Thank you. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy, long-withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world, which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. Here we stand as if by the seashore, the water of faith that once met us at our necks and we swam easily within it seems to withdraw. And no matter how far we run toward it and try to immerse ourselves within it again, it continues to evade us. Now it, at best it eddies and pools around our ankles and it seems to be gone and going. And with it, so much that we once presumed about the world, about meaning and about hope, and what Desmond does 
and I, and, and he stands in a, a line, I think certainly with Carl Rahner to say, is, is this the final blow? Is this over? Is the darkness has it won? Or if you stand firm, if you wait, if you open yourself and listen, is it possible that we see that what is now the withdrawal of the water is but part of the tide and that the tide can change and the waters of faith rise again? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the question, the imagery of, say, the eclipse of faith, to the evacuation of the sea of faith, is it an over and done accomplishment? Is it something that is irreversible? Or is it, given the right spiritual practices, the right type of ascesis or discipline, is it something that we can experience the reversal of? And that's what I find Desmond's philosophy more than capable of doing, is not denying the darkness or the difficulties of, of human existence, but actually giving us ways, philosophically credible ways, of abiding within that. Hmm. It's so vivid and so... I think, you know, going back to what you first spoke about, there's a, a sort of paralysis and maybe even fear in terms of thinking about secularity and the the loss of faith and the loss of the sort of atmosphere of faith. But this, it sort of charges us, it seems, with this possibility for courage to seek out, as you were speaking of before, new ways to wade into the waters in a new manner, to to actually be charged with the power of seeking that might create or present to us a way that seemed like there was no way. You know, I'm, 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 I'm mindful or remembering, I think it's in your, well, actually I'll look, it's in your third chapter. This has, this is the chapter, the poetics of the in-between and you're talking about Mm. metaxology there. And where am I? Page 137. You're talking about the, the practice of attention, the practice of mindfulness. And this is going back to something you were speaking to us about before of being attentive to the new moments and the new possibilities, which really calls for a kind of awakening and an awareness. Now, I think, you know, especially in recent decades and probably longer than that, there's been this sort of modern fad of mindfulness and kind of centering rituals and sort of new age spiritualities. But it strikes me that what you're speaking about here isn't, I mean, it might bear some resemblance to that, but that's actually sort of imitating a deeper, more traditional type of practice of being awakened to ourselves as creatures, of being situated in this world, of actually recognizing perhaps our possibilities and responsibilities. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the importance of this kind of attentiveness, this mindfulness, this waking. Yeah, that's, thank you for asking that. I think one a friend of mine pushed back when he read a draft of the volume and said, he's like, why, why mindfulness? Is that, is it too thin? And I, I grant the point mindful. I like the phrase metaxological mindfulness because there's an alliterative quality to it. <laughs> but, but to, to be fair, I, I think that contemporary practices of it, as we find in, you know, bookshops or in pod, you know, other podcasts, other podcasts, thank you. Other podcasts, not this podcast. <laughs> other podcasts. That there is a shallowness to it. A, that mindfulness is all about you, and it's it's self-absorbed or solipsistic and only self-referential. Well, I think that this overt focusing on the self has actually been spiritually damaging because there's no flow from the self. It's as if we have to we have to 
buffer the self away from everybody else. And these practices of mindfulness are supposed to create some force shield against the disturbances of the world. What Christian spirituality, what Desmond's form of metaxological mindfulness does is it helps to, it's a form of attention, of attentiveness that leads us to confront sort of the cracks or the, the fissures or thin places within reality, within being, within ourselves, and to, to abide at those places to see if there are glimpses of light of what is other than the self. So places of breakthrough, or maybe even breakdown, that lead to renewed, op- that are renewed openings to what is other to the self, that lead us out into a world of service. So that where mindfulness, sometimes I think it's like the practice of it, as I, as I notice it among students, it's as if they're being called away from the world, called out of the world and deeper into themselves to be locked away. A metaxological summons, a theological summons to discipleship is always a call through the world to serve the world. It's called out of the self by what is beyond the self. And it, Oddly enough, by calling us out of ourselves, it gives us an infinite range to become ourselves. Hmm. And I find that sort of by re-metaxological meditation, as I see Desmond practicing it, leads us to become recharged at the, through these practices and then thrust out into what he would call agapeic service, loving service, or what Christians, as we would see it, and Desmond is himself a Catholic, discipleship. Mm-hmm. How do we serve the one who loved us first and who has called us into the service? And it's, it's, it's a knowing service, one cultivated and empowered through these practices. You would see them, that loving service, that discipleship requires that we first be able to see, right, that we're actually attentive to what's actually there and that we have the sort of creativity in our vision and also in our action to deal with what's actually there, to respond to what's actually there in the world. It, it almost makes me, it makes me think of, you know, the, the film Field of Dreams and there's the, the brother-in-law who just can't see the field, right? He keeps coming and, you know, Kevin Costner and his daughter and wife are sitting there watching this baseball game and he's like, you know, the ball's flying by him. He can't see it. He's sort of absorbed in his own narrative, but then he's shocked into seeing it and the new possibilities open up. Or maybe if we keep this a little bit more in our Christian theological tradition, it it seems very much like somebody like St. Bonaventure, right? And his, his journey of the mind to God that, yeah. That is a reawakening to the meaning and the beauty of creation, but it requires, as you're speaking of, this kind of commitment of the self, this this kind of awakening of the self to be returned to the world that God has created, to be able to see it, and then to be able to communicate with God in all things in our agapeic response, in this discipleship. So, I mean, I think that brings me to, to what I— if I may be so bold myself, would call maybe the boldest goal of your book, and we'll probably this will probably be the last thing we'll be able to touch on. But I thought that the really bold goal of your book is in refusing to be satisfied with merely describing the spiritual exercises for a secular age. Instead, as you say, you quote, want to show also how Desmond's philosophy can be approached as an ascesis one must undertake. So it's not just about the description, it's also about sort of a guiding into this practice. How do you see that as true of Desmond's philosophy? And maybe if you could just say a word about your method for showing that to us. Sure. 
with for Desmond, it is pro- it is possible to look at his work as as an aesthetic beauty. I mean, his be- his work is beautiful, but that that underplays how important the poetics of his work is. So it's it's there's a movement, a, a dialectic of its own between poesis, a making, and anesthesis, a way of perceiving. And so it was because of my own experience of the way I read and began to see the world differently that I, I, fra- I, I that was my insight into Desmond's work, is that it's not something to be gone over with a highlighter and notes taken about it. it it's something that has to be undergone. And my approach to doing that is by framing, and it's certainly my my. Jesuit heritage, my Ignatian spirituality shows through in this as spiritual exercise, but I use the framework provided by the French thinker Pierre Hadot, who spent an enormous amount of time in his career exploring ancient philosophy as a practice, or what he would say as a way of life. And philosophy not just meant to inform, but to form the way we live our lives. And so through the chapters, what I'm trying to invite readers to do I am inviting, whether they try it out or not, I I cannot say, (laughs) is to use their imaginations to see how these philosophical exercises, these spiritual exercises are implicating. So they, they implicate the reader and they transform the way we abide within the world. It's not just what we know, but it's how we see. Iris Murdoch, one of my favorite lines, describes the, the enemy of the, of the self, of, our, of morality, as the fat, relentless ego. Hmm. And she says, you know, to overcome this, we need to undertake practices of unselfing, or Simone Weil's decreation. Hmm. Well, here we have a really contemporary version of these, of undergoing exercises that displace the grasping of the ego and help to reawaken us to a sense of being grasped by one who comes and makes possible the ego at all, the loving creator. My guest has been Father Ryan Duns of Marquette University. His book is Spiritual Exercises for a Secular Age, Desmond and the Quest for God, available from the University of Notre Dame Press. Father Ryan, thanks so much for joining us today. Lenny, thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed. It's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?